millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. My name is Dave Hanratty and I'm broadcasting live from my bedroom. There will be no encore. Welcome back. It's episode 362. And yeah, it's remote. It's it's that weird feeling again. Adam doesn't even have a microphone. I've taken over. Imagine this was like a weird dispatch where I just went into business for myself and started broadcasting, I don't know, like hate speech or something from 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 from, from my room. I wouldn't do that. I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I wouldn't actually do that. Anyone who does that is a terrible person, obviously. Well, I, I, I really... I've, I've KO'd this show immediately, so it needs rescuing. And who better to do so than finally returning to the show, the always welcome, the no-encore prodigal son, the OG, my man, down in Cork, it's Colin O'Regan. What's up, brother? I'm not sure if I'd come if I knew that that was going to be my job, but hey, I'm here now. Well, I think rescuing me was your job oh, uh, <laughs> during the, the lengthy period of time you're on the show. Uh, for any new listeners who might not know you, how would you describe yourself? Oh, look, but by now, I, I don't know. Uh, certainly back seven years ago, which is crazy to say out loud, uh, I uh, was, yeah, part of No Encore at the very beginning and a uh, former music journalist with Hot Press magazine. And uh, now, uh, yeah, Corkonian, bald man, a bald man about town. I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're really banging on about this bald man about town thing. For those who can't see, Cullum has gone full Stone Coast Steve Austin and it looks amazing. Although you don't have like a full goatee and beard thing going on. No, just just some mild stubble to give my face and head some type of shape. Otherwise, I just look like an egg. But uh, yeah, no, I, I finally um, took the suggestions that male pattern baldness has sort of been whispering through my life for many years now. And uh, just got rid completely. And uh, yeah, it feels good. I feel liberated. I feel streamlined. Ready to go. 
I got a haircut today, perhaps in solidarity of some description. So, you know, <laughs> my sides and back have been shorn. Uh, okay, listen, so it's a music podcast, as we all know. And um, just so you know, there are loud, loud, loud children outside my room. Outside my room? Outside like, my house. My room is my, you know, like, you get me. They're on the street playing and they're very fucking loud. So if they come through the audio, not much I can do, really. Um, there's also a, a, a large boiler to my left, so... We're not in Adam's studio. We're not in Kansas anymore. But Adam is here. He's off mic, but he's his watchful eyes and ears are on us. So without further ado, let's get into No Encore. Um, our top five this week, which we'll be jumping into later, of course. Cullum, uh, as my special guest, much like with Alva Reddy last week and with Mark Conroy the week before, where possible, with guest co-hosts, I want people to choose their own top five. You had one. We realized it was too much work. And then you came up with another one. Can you explain what we're talking about and why you chose this and how you went about it? Top five show-stealing support acts that we've seen. Yeah, so this, I suppose it's one that like every music fan has a few stories along the way of bands that they saw uh, before the headliners. Um, And yeah, left an indelible mark, I suppose. And Certainly, I know that one or two of the bands that I'll be bringing up, I've been dining out on the stories for years. I'm always interested to hear others too, because obviously it's where you get those sort of hidden gems. And, you know, I mean, listen, you go down Cork and there's an awful lot of people, more than could fit in the venue, who claim to have seen Nirvana supporting Sonic Youth back in the day in Sir Henry's. And, you know, stories like that just live on forever. So, uh, yeah, I thought it would be interesting to share a few of mine and hear a few of yours. Yeah, that one there is like kind of reminds me of that. Like there was a, a gag uh, in professional wrestling, of course. How, uh, how, how long do you think it would take us, listener, to get to professional wrestling? There was a gag in, of all places, TNA years ago, I think, where Kevin Nash was talking to someone about, you know, headlining Madison Square Garden. And of course, famously, he was a weak draw as WWF champion and didn't sell a lot of tickets, I believe, during his run. But he was kind of poking fun at that and said something to the effect of someone goes to him, I didn't know the garden could hold 50,000 people. And Kevin Nash goes... It did that night, which I think is pretty good. Um, Okay, so yes, uh, support acts. And speaking of support, if you want to support this show, this independent podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash noencore. Help us keep the lights on. Very much appreciate everyone who does. And with that out of the way, we dive into the new section, which sounds like this. Start spreading the news. Yeah, a gregarious enough intro to proceedings and to the show itself, but we got to bring the tone down just a bit, unfortunately, because I think we should talk about this. I think we have to talk about this. Tragic news emerged on Friday evening last when uh, the news went up on Twitter via The Script social media accounts, the band The Script, that their guitarist founding member and indeed, I mean, talisman, like, I mean, kind of chief songwriter, like, like a huge, huge part of this band, Mark Sheehan, unfortunately passed away in hospital following a sudden illness at the age of 46. This came out of nowhere. This was a complete shock. Uh, tributes poured in. It was a weird one in as much as it happened around the time that Joe Biden was over here. And I kind of feel like it was obviously slightly overshadowed due to that. But at the same time, I mean, the tributes are endless. Even President Michael D. Higgins got involved. Uh, the script are one of those acts that we've talked about in this podcast before. I interviewed Danny O'Donoghue a few years ago for Joe in what turned out to be something of a comical interview at times. I mean, he just gave me these unbelievable quotes and, you know, I kind of attacked them with a fervent glee, but I, I don't regard that piece as a hatchet job. I really don't have anything too bad to say about the script. And obviously in the wake of the passing of Mark Sheehan, it's, it's, it's devastatingly sad and very, very shocking. 
um, I was just kind of scrolling through Twitter on the Friday evening when the news broke and kind of one of those things where I actually checked. I checked the social media accounts of both their Twitter and their Instagram to make sure that they were actually the verified accounts because I just thought that just seems impossible. Um, it's, it's, it's an awful story. There's not really a lot we can say about it apart from the guy worked extremely hard and whatever you think about the script, whether you're into their music or not, they have been a huge, huge export from this country. They are an international act. I've said that before. They, their reach spans the globe. Ryan Tedder of One Republic was one of the first people to kind of pay tribute. And he did say that, you know, he loved his time working with, uh, with, with, with this guy and, and with the band. I mean, it, it's, all, it's all very, very hard to take. And I think a lot of people in Irish music are hurting right now. Colin, what was your response to this? And, you know, did you ever... Even to the, surely even to the script, you, like you worked for Hot Press. The most yeah, no, no, no. I, I've interviewed them all right, and I've interviewed Danny a few times. I would have only come across Mark and Glenn kind of around the time of that Croke Park gig. Um, I did a few things with them in, I guess, the months leading up to that kind of press conferences and interviews and so forth. And um, look, I mean, yeah, as you say, like we've had our fun with the script on occasion. I think most people have, but notable, I suppose, is that like nobody ever seems to say they're bad guys by any means you know occasionally a bit cringeworthy or earnest or whatever but generally good dudes and you could see a lot of that in sort of the tributes I, I know as well from kind of back at that time a lot of bands coming up would name check them as being kind of guys that you'd go to for advice or for a bit of encouragement and stuff I saw in some of the tributes you'd like people like Danny O'Reilly saying that like he was always someone who was good for encouraging uh, the Coronas and, and like I say a lot of other bands uh, have similar stories to tell but I suppose the thing that stands out as obvious as it might be was even the band's own statement saying you know that husband father brother I mean at, at 46 years old you can kind of put aside the the musical side and, and what he did with the band and everything for a minute like he should have been looking at the next 46 years perhaps and uh, just desperately sad in in that respect. Yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, you can add Wild Youth, you know, kind of, which includes friend of the sh- good friend of the show, Ed Porter. I, you know, I think I saw at least one of them kind of saying the same thing. That I mean, like, guess Mark Sheehan had some kind of unheralded, perhaps, uh, mentor thing about him. I saw even people who I'd follow on Twitter who I don't think they're necessarily in music, but they're clearly in the industry to some degree, and they said that you know, anytime I spoke to him, he was always so nice to me. He gave me so much great advice. He did seem like one of the good guys, to use that kind of cliche. And yeah, I mean, you're dead right. I mean, like any kind of, you know, criticism of the band goes out the window when something like this happens, because you just like the thing about the thing about this is, is that whether it's like Mark Sheehan or Daniel Donahue or whoever, you just expect these people to just always be there. Like you just Mm. expect them to constantly be around. And thus, at a certain point, when a band especially like this becomes so kind of stratospheric and again, they are one of those bands that I've kind of st- I've said before. I'm like, you might not be aware how big they are around the world. They're fucking huge. Yeah, and, and like, forget around the world, even around the time of that Croke Park gig. I mean, like, that is incredibly rarefied air for Irish artists. I mean, it's basically kind of you two boys own West life do those sort of gigs, and that's it. So, yeah, they were kind of punching at a pretty high level for a long time. And, yeah, I mean... Shit, you, you know, he, he kind of earned the right to, after all, that put his feet up and enjoy the fruits of his labour, so to speak. And uh, yeah, it seems very cruel that uh, that's been denied. Yeah, it's devastatingly sad. And our, our our sincere thoughts, our hearts go out to the family of Mark Sheehan, friends and people who've worked with him in the industry, because by all accounts, he's a hell of a guy. Even if he wasn't, 46 is just a tragically young age and it's really, really sad news. So rest in peace to Mark Sheehan. Uh, we'll move on to something completely different. Um, I don't know about you, but 
I think I'm, I never thought I'd say this. I think I'm, I'm, I'm stopping myself, Colin, I'm hesitating. I think I'm kind of over Frank Ocean to, <laughs> to a bit, to a degree. Not the music, the music's unbelievable, but like the whole thing, the whole mystique, I think he's dented his reputation, something horrible. But we are, of course, referring to Coachella. Did you tune into any of the live streams of which Frank Ocean was not one of the official ones? I didn't, no. Uh, I didn't have a chance to tune in over the weekend. And because there was obviously a few things going on that caught the eye, uh, Jay Paul being one, Frank. First ever show. Let's just stop there for a second. Jay Paul, of course, another patron saint to no encore. First ever performance. And I saw Questlove kind of giving out about that. He was like, where are the mentor programs? Where, where, where's the experience? Like, I kind of didn't really fully understand his point, so I don't want to get him wrong here. I'll find, I'll find what he said. You keep talking. Was it kind of like that he hadn't paid his dues, so to speak? Like, that's the vibe I got from it. But again, I like Questlove. I don't want to misquote him. I know he listens to this show, so let me just track this down, and you kind of continue on your similar path to me. I assume, and that I didn't really bother checking in because I kind of think Coachella sucks. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I'm not sure I'd ever really form a good opinion of it from the far side of a computer screen, although there are a lot of things about it that, um, yeah, make me doubt whether or not I'd enjoy it in person either, although then again, that's... What are those things? Let's hear them. List them. I mean, it just seems quite fashion forward for a festival, and I, I don't think I can combine those two things. Like, I like, you know getting dolled up with the best of them. And I love a good festival. But doing both at the same time sounds like hell. Yeah, and I was talking to Dahi about this. Dahi texted me and he said, he goes, oh, I'm just catching up on the Frank Ocean stuff now. And he's like, imagine like we took the leap and went all the way. So as far as I'm aware, I think it's $550 for a, a ticket to the festival. Obviously, if you're coming from another country, you're in the bacon hot sun, you're surrounded by fucking influencers queuing up to get their photo at the Ferris wheel. You can only get a certain amount of alcohol in designated areas, I think. And, you know, more power to you if you don't imbibe. But I'd need a few beers to get me through that experience. It just sounds like a disaster. So here's what Questlove said about Jay Paul. We'll get back to Frank in a moment. Uh, Someone put up a video and said, first ever performance. Questlove on Twitter said, first ever. We're just starting performance experience at Coachella. Where are the mentors and teachers? Like no one my age from the industry is thinking about passing any knowledge or information on. Somebody replied and said... No J. Paul slander. He responded, Questlove responded and said, not even, but I'm wondering if the idea of ramping up means anything anymore. I'm more shocked at the notion that this is unprecedented. What do you think? I mean, first of all, I would have to presume, given J. Paul's track record over more than a decade, that it wasn't that nobody offered him an opportunity here. In much the same way as, you know, he's had a chance to release music like normal artists and talk to the media. And he hasn't done anything of that. And presumably that's very much by choice. I would have to think that, um, yeah, making his bow at Coachella was a similar situation. I like I I love J Paul. I worship the ground he walks on. However, I think it is a bit ridiculous. I think it's it's a little ridiculous, but I'm not against it because I think he is enough of a cult following. It is a story. How often do we have these kind of weird stories in music anymore? And it's funny that J Paul showed up, played his set, mixed reactions to it. I think, but he played his set. He since announced like a couple of shows in London, a couple of shows in New York. They're going to obviously be impossible to get to. Mm. But he showed up and he he put the work in. And it happens on the same weekend as Frank Ocean, previously and still Mr. Mystique, Mr. Mysterio. Do you, are you aware of what happened? And for anyone listening, do you know what happened with Frank Ocean's set? Are you aware of the bullet points here? I, I, I mean, somewhat. It's 
complicated. So he apparently, like, the story that's going around now, and it's been reported on, like, various different kind of websites, uh, you know, credible ones, I would say, is that he, is that Frank Ocean apparently suffered a serious ankle injury during on-site rehearsals in the week leading up to the headlining set at the festival. Now, of course, this was locked in quite some time ago, um, and essentially fucking... The build-up, I guess, the insurance of it all. I Apparently, Doctor said, don't perform, or at least take pressure off the ankle by changing production for the show. So the rumour is that the stage was going to be an ice skating rink. Yeah. <laughs> which is just... That's 80s hair metal band bullshit, no? What, what's going on? He's I a mean, high-concept genius. I'm sure he could have done something cool with it. But what do you think? Well, I, certainly it's not very well suited to a man with a busted ankle. Um, In fact, if you were to script what could possibly go wrong for a man lining up an ice skating stage, you'd have to say a busted ankle would be near the top of the list. (laughs) Um, I I, I keep having flashbacks. Do Do you remember that time the one at Jedward did their leg at like some, you know, four on the beach or one of those kind of free festivals in, in England? And, I mean, uh, your, uh, your former arch nemesis, Jedward. Hey, what? They weren't my arch nemesis so much as their fans on Twitter were. Um, but no, yeah, one of them injured themselves and basically just like knelt on the ground while the other one danced around him for the rest of the set. But they sounds, finished it. Sounds like the most terrifying fucked up ritual I've ever heard. I like treating him like a maypole. Like, I think it was more that it was, you know, a fulcrum around which the performance had to go from there. But um, they finished their set, fair play to them. Um, it doesn't sound as though uh, things went quite as smoothly for our Frank, though. No, and also you can even look recently at Zach Della Rocca. Um, did himself, was it, did he rupture his tendons or something or his Achilles? He did something bad and played a couple of shows, possibly in a prone position. And then they were like, well, this doesn't work. So they're back to the drawing board again. Uh, yeah, so Frank Ocean stu- sat on a stool while singing and periodically walked over to his backing band, according to this Pitchfork report. Um, there's, it was supposed to be live streamed hours beforehand. The live stream was pulled. Because Coachella was live streaming the majority of its performances. I don't think the Jay Paul one was put out live. I think mm-hmm. it is on a watchback, though. I think if you go like seven and a half hours into whatever day it was on. Um, so, yeah, he Frank arrives on stage uh, almost an hour late. <laughs> uh, ends the set abruptly before the curfew. No, apparently over the cur- curfew. I think mm-hmm. he was 20 minutes. Uh, well, although it says, it says here that he ended his set at around 25 past 12 midnight. And the curfew is apparently one in the morning. Now, they have been fined a lot of money for curfew breaches already based on the most recent weekend. So he played um, alternate songs of the catalogue, including stripped back versions of Novocaine, Crack Rock, Pink and White and Bad Religion. Did a rework of White Ferrari. Uh, apparently was playing to some like rubbish kind of phoned in backing tracks and yeah i mean this was the part that caught my eye that you know okay he occasionally walked over to the band getting off his stool fair enough he also occasionally just walked away from the microphone as his voice just continued to ring out and therefore suggesting that he was perhaps not actually singing at all 
Yeah, and also, sorry, just to uh, walk back my my error there, the 1am curfew applies to the two days previous. It, it is a 12 midnight curfew on the night that he performed, which was the Sunday, so thus he was, in fact, over curfew. It's a bit and like festival, Irish alcohol sales. Everyone has to get to mass. <laughs> uh, well, Frank Ocean gig will be mass for some people. We, we, you think it will be. Uh, he's been fined, uh, not Frank, the festival has been fined $117,000 for breaking curfew violations. Um, I don't know if it all applies to... to to Frank, I think it's, you know, an overall thing. But I mean, look, as it happened, right, this is a fiasco. And I ask you, Cullum, and I ask you, listener, who could possibly have seen this coming? You know, I love Frank. We all do. We adore him. If, if anything, we might overrate him. People are, like, have dinged us before on the show for being so, you know, the very first time we did an end of year list, all three of us at the time, it was blonde all the way, 20 points each. No question. We love him. But I'm tired of this, man. I think it's kind of... I don't think it's cool. I mean, and there's moments... Like, he paid tribute to, to his late brother, which is beautiful. There is obviously beauty in the contradictions here. But, like, I don't... Obviously, if another album comes along, I'm, I can't wait to hear it. Day one. I don't know if I'd have the fervent excitement I had for Blonde. I just think that, like, his persona... It just sounds to me like, you don't like playing gigs. That's fine. Don't do them. What do you think? Yeah, no, that that is fair. I mean, the one thing I would say is that, you know, as much as, of course, yeah, we had Blonde at the top of our end of year lists on that year, you'll also remember the wait for Blonde. Uh, I distinctly, for instance, remember uh, on one particular occasion where the release had kind of been teased or rumoured and, you know, we were on standby, basically, it didn't happen. I can remember the No Encore running order for the following week, the news section being headed in bold, Frank Ocean is a fucking liar. <laughs> so angsty. So this pain is something we know and that we've been through before. And uh, I suppose, look, it, it's always the case that if the finished product, if and when it eventually arrives, actually... um justifies it then will all is forgiven it doesn't sound like this particular live show justified uh, some of the messing and the waiting and all the rest of it but it's frank you know it you you would be brave to bet against his next proper project um not being able to turn things around shall we say yeah, no, I fully agree. And also, you get what you pay for. And I do find the idea of all these fucking, you know, Coachella people, revelers, hashtag revelers, you know, I'm like, well, you know, buyer's remorse, guys, you know, like, <laughs> he's not a proven live draw. And Vanilla Jones, friend of the show, did say, as someone who saw him open for the Killers in Phoenix Park back in 2013, I think it might have been, mm. she was like, not surprised. Not really. <laughs> didn't go very well. Well, of course, Adam, in an incredible, live from my kitchen, hello, an incredible breaking news that occurred at approximately uh, 10 to 11 p.m. on Wednesday evening, approximately two hours after we finished recording. Yeah, Frank Ocean has uh, pulled out of Coachella's second weekend, <laughs> so he won't be headlining it after all. Um, citing the damage done to his leg, I believe. Uh, so, you know, it's a fair enough, it's a legitimate medical concern, but, um, you know, what's that song by the Hives? That famous one. Hate to something. Yeah, I mean, who, who could possibly have foreseen this set of circumstances? Uh, but yes, of course. Love to Frank. Hope he's doing well. Hope you're doing well. Back in the studio, buddy. Let's get that album. Uh, before we move on from Coachella things that we didn't attend, 
Um, Sonic Architect Adam did note there in the chat that you had to enter a ballot for the chance to buy J. Paul tickets. It's silly season out there, you know? But what if I could interest you in a different kind of concert experience? (laughs) (laughs) Did you manage to come up with a pun headline for this one? Because I just couldn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um... I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I tried. I think the story itself uh, has enough gems in it to be perfectly well, can you, honest. Uh, can you take the lead on this one? Yeah, so it was a Bored Gosh uh, Energy Theatre uh, performance uh, of music from The Lord of the Rings. Um, an unofficial show, which is rather important to point out because a lot of people have been complaining that it wasn't quite what they expected. Uh, the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, the concert, was produced by Star Entertainment, and that uh, was last Monday in the Borgosh NG Theatre. And apparently uh, what was meant to be a two-hour performance with a full orchestra and a choir had like 25 musicians, some video which was meant to be Lord of the Rings but clearly wasn't Lord of the Rings. It was hosted by the bloke who played Sauron who knew nothing about what was really going on and told a lot of stories that had nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. It had an amazing moment where, because the orchestra was largely Ukrainian, they asked people to stand for the anthem of Mordor and then played the Russian national anthem, which, I mean, is petty and understandable given, you know, geopolitics on, and all that. But petty. I, I, I think it's a genius move, but it's also like, what are we doing? <laughs> it, it does feel a bit Bush League, though. Like, I mean, again, it's very professional wrestling, put it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence, hence my appreciation thereof. And, yeah, basically a lot of unhappiness, people seeking refunds. Howard Shore had come out beforehand and said, look, we're trying to get this stopped, basically. This is nothing to do with us. Um, we feel it necessary to alert fans and followers that these have nothing to do with us and that a lawsuit is in progress. And yeah, it just sounds like a bit of a mess. Yeah, shouts to two people here, I guess. Uh, Nyler9 for sending me this story during the week and I couldn't believe what I was reading. And also uh, the journal, uh, the, the reporter at the journal who wrote this kind of major deep dive and spoke to people who went to it. The kind of piece of music journalism I'm like oh man I'd love to have done that one that sounds like so much fun to just sink your teeth into this bizarre kind of thing I, I, th- th- this performance or, or this troupe or whatever are touring the UK at the moment with UK and Ireland with this I should obviously I mean but I mean they're, 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 it's not just Dublin it's other places and yeah. yeah the fact that Howard Shore composer for the original like trilogy's music and whatever is stepping in being like this is complete bollocks I find it weird that it got booked in the first place but I mean I don't know maybe, maybe it's just an incredibly deceiving circus act until it finally kicks off and you're like wait a minute yeah I mean that's the thing It responsibility here does kind of lie with the booker or promoter or venue or you know whoever exactly is responsible in this case but somebody within that umbrella basically has to know what they're actually getting involved in because from a fan's point of view, you know, it's essentially, it's a tribute act, so to speak, but in terms of quality control, um, that's got to fall to somebody. It was suggested, though, that um, because there was a UK tour rolled into this, that visa issues had stopped a lot of the co- uh, the orchestra from reaching the UK, and that maybe that had something to do with what was happening in Dublin as well. Um, I don't know, Brexit, huh? Always to blame. <laughs> It always comes back to Brexit. Um, I did send you this story, though, and you responded by saying that it would give you the chance to reference your favourite headline of the year. What is this again? Oh, yeah. Um, bodyguard show stopped after audience members refused to stop singing along. 
Um, <laughs> now, to, to be fair, I was then sent like videos of what had happened and like, you know, it turned out, I mean, not that nasty, I suppose, but like, you know, there were scuffles as security tried to remove people from the venue. But yeah, this was the bodyguard, the musical uh, being performed in Manchester and just like some drunk people trying to sing, I will always love you and like screeching it. I mean, if you think the kids outside your window are loud, Dave, this was a new level and not a note in their heads. And obviously people who had paid good money for tickets were quite upset. I would have been upset if I was in that crowd. However, I wasn't. I was just reading the newspaper headline and I loved it. <laughs> uh, something I love this week. Uh, good news on the Soundgarden front of all things. The surviving memories of Soundgarden and lay frontman Chris Cornell's widow, uh, widow Vicky Cornell, my apologies, widow, uh, have settled their long-standing legal dispute and will in fact release the band's final recordings. And apparently, like we talked about this on the show before once or twice, it got really ugly mm. between the guys from Soundgarden and Vicky Cornell. And obviously... I think fans, you know, I think of like, you know, good friend of the show, Carla Malacco in particular, who's like a huge fan of Soundgarden, Chris Cornell. Uh, I, I think fans like who, who really take this band to heart and also remain devastated by the by the tragic passing of Chris Cornell. This was the last thing anybody fucking wanted was any kind of acrimony between these two parties. You know, you really don't want a fissure to occur at this stage. And it didn't look like it was necessarily going to get a harmonious resolution, but clearly you know, whatever settlement has been agreed uh, satisfies all parties and we're going to get some new music. Um, the band said, Chris, five years, we have missed you. You have love, you have peace, you have eternity. Love and peace for all of Soundgarden's brothers and sisters. Um, I don't. I still don't know how I feel about posthumous music, but I do think I want to hear this one. I mean, like Linkin Park, for example, recently released some kind of Meteora era stuff that they hadn't finished or kind of spruced up or whichever. And... I gotta say, like, hearing a quote-unquote new song with Chester Bennington on the vocals and those vocals being extremely Chester Bennington-y in as much as not just the pitch but the lyrical content and it being very dark and difficult and obviously, you know, in referencing his own passing, uh, I found it both very, very difficult to hear but also I, I was delighted to hear it again. I, I, like, it, It's such a pulse and such a charge and again, there are people around the world, myself included, who for a time would have really gotten an awful lot from his vocals, his lyrics and how, how it was done. And I think Chris Cornell is kind of up there as well and like just a, one of the great voices in music. It's just, it's a weird, like, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what your relationship is with posthumous music, but it can be a bit of a weird one. At least we know that people here are all on the same side. Maybe yeah. That kind of makes it okay. Well, and I think that's the main thing here was that, yeah, however you feel about the posthumous music, the fact that this sort of rancor existed had kind of probably spoiled the older songs as well, that basically like the memory of Chris Cornell and what the band achieved together was somewhat sullied for as long as this disagreement was going on. And so now that that's uh, put to one side, yeah, you'll get the posthumous music and make of that what you will. But uh, I suppose also, yeah, you can enjoy his legacy and the band's legacy without kind of wondering, you know, where's his money going or how does anybody feel about this in particular? Um, all appears to be right with the world. And uh, yeah, good thing for the fans uh, for whom this music obviously clearly means a lot still. Yeah, and finally in the news section this week, uh, something that I don't think is a good thing, something I'm not into at all, and I I'm, I find it I, I don't know I, like it's it's a whatever about my relationship with posthumous music. This is a whole different ball game. Adam, if you wouldn't mind playing um, the new Oasis song, please. Thinking I die 
Okay, Colm, what did we just listen to? We just listened not to Oasis, but to Aisis, um, which is, yeah, a project that was released this week where they have used an AI generation of Liam Gallagher's voice to overdub uh, some tracks which they kind of suggested could be the lost Oasis tapes. Now, yeah, to be at a clear, specific period between 97 and 2000. As yeah. Well. Now, these are songs that were written by real people, so to speak. A band called Breezer, which by all accounts never really came to anything. Um, but it was their idea to basically take some of their old tunes that they had written uh, back o- along and revisit them. Uh, essentially teaching an AI program to use Liam's voice to sing uh, the lyrics. And this is what they produced. And I've got to say, it's uncanny. Do you think it's uncanny? Well, no, I, like, it sounds a lot like Liam. And the other thing that I would say is that these songs are written by humans and are clearly very heavily influenced by Oasis. Cribbed from Oasis, one could go so far as to say. Well, Oasis themselves cribbed uh, from uh, the Fab Four, sure. if, if, if I can unleash such a molten hot take. Um, I know what you're saying, and I think you're mostly not wrong. And I think actually there's been a weirdly positive re- response to this, which kind of unnerves me. But also, do you not think that at certain points, and yeah, I know... They get like a shine or whatever, like at one stage in there, in that clip you heard. But do you not think it sounds a bit like Tom DeLonge? Um, a little bit, now that you mention it. I mean, I mean, I still think it sounds like Liam Gallagher. Indeed, Liam Gallagher seems to think it sounds like Liam Gallagher. He responded to uh, the tracks uh, finally today, saying he hadn't heard the album, but he heard one track. And he said, it's mad as fuck. I sound mega. Which, I, is that self-congratulatory to enjoy your own AI generation? It's probably better than him saying the words cease and desist. So who knows? Maybe that's coming. But like, let's let's check in with this band, Breezer, you said they were called. So Bobby mm. Garrity, 32-year-old singer, songwriter and producer, said, we just got bored waiting for Oasis to reform. He said this in a pretty good feature in The Guardian this week. All we have now is Liam and his brother trying to outdo each other. But that is an Oasis. So we got an AI model, Liam, to step in on some tunes that are originally written for our short-lived project. Uh, they also say at one stage that... They think that this is the future. Like, this is what everyone's kind of saying. I mean, we brought a band back from the dead. And I think that's something we'll see a lot more of. And that sounds like a fucking threat. I don't like this, man. Same with, you know, there was this kind of Drake in the Weekend, again, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, song generated by AI. Um, there was this thing recently, like, imagine like what a film would look like by Wes Anderson or Tarantino, etc. And everyone's just like, everyone seems to be very, very happy about this. Not everyone, sorry, that's way too much of a generalization, but a lot of people seem to be accepting of this and marveling at how how spot on it all is. And to me, it isn't. To me, it actually isn't quite there. But of course, you know, it's probably going to get there, which is the scarier part. And sure, listen, I am speaking to somebody who once lost a job due to a fucking unfinished algorithm. And obviously with ChatGPT and other stuff out there, it does in fact threaten my livelihood to a degree. Chiefly, I just don't like it. I just don't think it's cool. I hope it's a fad. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with everything you've just said. At the same time as well, I'm reminded of, like, remember when we were all going to be going to watch hologram concerts? And, you know, since that first time, was it Tupac at Coachella was the first one or certainly one of the first that was covered by the mainstream media that I can remember? 
you know, from there, it's been a handful, right? You've got the ABBA project in London, but really it's not exactly taken over. It's not been the future of music. In the same way, I imagine that you're going to see a handful of things that use AI like this. And um, yeah, some better than others, I'm sure, but I don't think it's necessarily going to take over as much as some people are fearing, certainly not in the musical space, because first of all, yeah, I'm just not sure that much of it is going to be good enough, especially if they're going to trust, you know, non-humans to actually come up with the musical side of things. And the other side being, you know, something that I think you and I will have banged the drum on for years, which is that you know, context, backstory, etc. That's what makes most of music enjoyable and popular, to be perfectly honest, and not just the noises themselves, so to speak. And um, yeah, for as long as that's missing from AI, then yeah, it's never going to be the same. However, I will also say that AISIS, which granted written down works a lot better than out loud, but AISIS... For a band that also has Oasis and Foasis floating around, Oasis tribute acts just have their name game on point. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I will say in closing that, well, like the hologram thing is an interesting comparison, but I would say that that costs a lot more mm, money. Yeah. I mean, I think something like this and something like ChatGPT and kind of fucking around with people's voices, etc. It seems to be a lot more accessible and free in a lot of cases for people to just kind of go off with. So. I, I live in hope that it won't be the future of everything. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As a as an assistance thing, that could be yeah, fair enough. But like, I think you need, I think you need human imperfection, Cullum. And sometimes you get imperfection. Sometimes you get blown away when you go to a gig and you see a real life flesh and bone band in front of you, or a singer songwriter or whoever or whatever, supporting, opening the show, as it were. The humble support act is our top five this week. Um, yeah, so I mean. You did seem very persistent about doing this one. Like, I, I, I can't wait to hear this top five. You must have some great stories. But I do wonder, like, are, are we too... Does the Humble Support Act get their due? Because I'm not going to lie to you. There's plenty of times when I'm like, okay, that band will probably be on at like 9, 9.15. I'll skip the Support Act. Mm. Sometimes you're there. Do festival slots count as Support Acts? I mean, how does it all work? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The one thing that kind of jumped to my mind as I went through this process is that a lot of the ones that I would kind of hold nearer and dearer, I think, um, are a little bit ago now. Now, part of that is definitely, as you mentioned, uh, a kind of 
middle-aged fatigue, I think it's safe to say, but also very, very much a music journalist's fatigue of, I'm just skipping the support act where I can. But I do also wonder whether the age of, you know, really strong support acts just isn't what it used to be, of whether I think a lot of festival bills and then frankly just the fact that, you know, if you want a headline night for yourself, you can probably swing it one way or another. There'll be a venue somewhere to facilitate it. Um, That, yeah, that maybe the sort of high-ranking headline gigs just aren't what they used to be. Yeah, it's... I think a lot of times it's kind of... Obviously, like, if it's a major production, it could be, like, well, a label mate, you know, kind of Mm. get them in and, you know, get them out there as part of the whole process. In other cases, maybe it's a bit of an ad hoc thing. Um, Yeah, maybe I should have contacted a promoter this week. Next time. Instead, though, I've I've got some good nostalgia. I'm sure you do as well. And as our beloved guest, I would like you to go first, sir. All right. So in terms of nostalgia, well, this is literally as far back as I personally can go at number five. It's not quite Nirvana or at Sir Henry's, but it's the closest version that I have. Um, seeing Muse open for Ash in Cork's showgrounds in 2001. And that was, in fact, my first gig. Oh man, I'm fucking jealous. That's Plug In Baby, which was the first Muse song I ever heard. And I fell so hard in love with this. Yeah. And so this is from the Origin of Symmetry album, which in fact wasn't released until a couple of weeks later. So Plug In Baby had been the lead single. I think Newborn was released the day of this gig. And that was all that I knew of Muse really going in. And so... The thing is, especially given what's happened with the band, which makes it sound like it's not their fault, um, but, you know, (laughs) the sci-fi stuff and the drones and all the rest of it. But, like, they had some pretty damn good tunes. Yeah. And even now, having seen them live, whatever it was, four or five years ago, it's like, strip away some of the rubbish there's still some absolute bangers in there. And so this was, you know, before the rubbish, basically. This was just bangers on stage. And uh, yeah, it left a, left a pretty indelible mark, I would say. Oh, man. Uh, take me into the showgrounds, though. Tell me what this venue was like, having never been there. And also, crucially, what a, like, what Teenage Cullum is, yeah, so, is, all, is all about. Yeah, so I would have been uh, just about to turn 13. Um, the showground. So basically, this was—I think it was called the Heineken Green Energy Festival, if memory serves. Basically, the show, uh, the precursor to Live at the Marquee. So it was a bit of a tent set up. Basically, I'm guessing four thousand people, maybe. And Ash were the headliners. I liked Ash a lot of the time. Obviously, an Irish band um, had a pretty decent cachet. Um, but Muse, yeah, I think it's fair to say, kind of stole the show. And um, yeah, it's as close as I'm going to get to one of those real sort of, you know, before they were famous claims, because when they're back sort of playing multiple nights at Wembley and all the rest of it, you're just like, huh, didn't uh, didn't necessarily see that coming. 
Did um did Matt Bellamy have blood red hair at the time or the like the kind of crimson thing he had going on? I don't think so. If I remember correctly, the bassist had something going on at that moment. Although maybe Matt Bellamy did as well. To be fair, my recall of those minor details isn't going to be as strong <laughs> 22 years on. Well, the, the recall uh, was a difficulty for me, I must say, with this top five, because I find that I, I find myself being like, like, you know, I've, I've got letterbox now to log every fucking film I watch forever, but mm. I don't have a last FM or I don't know. I don't know if there is. I'm sure there is a place that you log gigs online that's not coming to me. But even like old concert tickets, I remember my mother threw out all my old concert tickets for no reason. And I was so upset. I was like, I was keeping those. <laughs> like, what the fuck? But then, of course, you know, over the years, you get into music journalism, you get to go to gigs for free. There is no ticket stub. But I mean, so w- 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 like, literally, call them down to the wire, like an hour or two before the show recording time today. I was struggling for a fifth. Like, I mean, I think my my memory just isn't, you know, it's not as good when it comes to retracing the steps of, well, who opened for Frank Turner that night? I don't fucking know. Do you know what I mean? So they got to be memorable. And I will say I'm very jealous of this pick because Muse are an act that, yes, again, we've had our fun with Muse because they've given us little choice in the last 10 years. But what an amazing first act of a career. And I've, I loved this. I, you know, my, my first pick coming up now in a second is of this kind of nature, certainly of the Kerrang buying days. And I remember it was through Kerrang and just like hearing Plug and Baby for the first time. And I really, I, I had the the back to the future moment of like, listen to this. I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And yeah, you go back to Origin of Symmetry and it fucking still slaps. So number five for me, um, it's the 3rd of February, 2002. If I recall correctly, having not looked this up, I think it was a Sunday night. Uh, so I would have been... Quick maths here. I would have been 17. Um, going up to Dublin to the big city, to the Point Depot for my first ever trip to the Point Depot. And I went to see a band called uh, Stained, you know? Oh, yeah. It's been a while. Been but a while. as I walked in um, for my first ever walk into the main arena of the Point, this was a real fucking big moment for me because just like everything sounded so big and cavernous. And here's a here's a band no one's ever heard of <laughs> for my number five. That's supported. So, uh, no one has any idea who that is, but maybe maybe one or two people do. The band are called Vex Red. It's V-E-X and then the colour red. The song there is called The Closest. It's the opening track on what will be their debut and to date only studio album, Start With A Strong And Persistent Desire. Uh, and essentially, they're formed in the glamorous town of Aldershot in England. Mm-hmm. Is it a town? I don't know. Is it a city? We'll never know. Uh, I could just press this button like here. It's a town, unreal. Uh, it lies on Heathland in the extreme northeast of the country, uh, southwest of London. So anyway, um, uh, Electronica, hard rock band, big time championed by Kerrang. And I can't remember if I heard of them beforehand or I, I went in and I just saw them playing. But 
my eyes lit up like a fucking Christmas tree, dude. It's like, this wasn't my first ever gig, but it was around that time. My first ever gig, as I think I've said in the show before, was Bon Jovi. Uh, so technically the first ever band I remember seeing was Bell X1, who opened for Bon Jovi, okay. followed by Andreas Johnson. What a weird double, what, what a weird bill that was at the RDS Outdoor. But this would have been around the time, like me going to Stained as a 17-year-old, this would have been around the time where it's like, I'm going to gigs, you know, I'm choosing to go to them with my friends, etc. All that kind of stuff. And... Yeah, I just like there's just something about this song in particular, because if I recall correctly, and I'm sure it's probably like a weird memory fog and maybe it was a completely different song. Maybe it was, you know, their big singles itch and can't smile. <laughs> but I my memory tells me that I walked into this giant fucking room and everything was black and there was a band on the stage and th- that kind of chorus was coming in and everything just seemed so exciting and big and promising and I knew I'd found my fucking tribe. Like, I, I, I know it's embarrassing at a stained gig. I know, I, I know, I know, I know. But I, I felt so free and I felt so, like, connected to something. You know, I really, really did. And I loved it. And I just loved that moment. And I can remember that moment. I can see that moment. I can fucking feel it now. And, you know, yeah, re- reading Kerrang, listening to the Radio 1 rock show, and this would come on, bought the album. It was only okay. Uh, they they broke up, I think, in 2003, but reformed in 2015. They put out an EP. They're kind of one of those bands that I don't know what's going on with them, but, like, they'll always have a place in my heart. And I do remember, the staying gig was great, by the way, they were fantastic, loved it. But I I walked away from it being like, that fucking, that opening set was amazing. Are they all this good? Turns out they're not. Yeah, I think you kind of summed up nicely one of the real functions of a support act, I think, anyway, which is to kind of, you know, get you in that mood of like, oh, something special is going to happen tonight, as it were. And um, for obvious reasons, that's going to be something you feel more uh, early on and younger and earlier in your gig going days, so to speak. But um, yeah, when when you get that, um, I think that's an opening act doing their job well, which is... uh, yeah, a precursor to something I'll be revisiting later in my list. Uh, well, it should be said before we move on to your list as well. From what I can recall, again, I don't think they had anything flashy going on in terms of any kind of visuals or backdrop or nothing. It was just your standard support act, black backdrop, whatever. Probably not even the same sound mix. But for me, it was the biggest thing of all time at that moment. So what have you got for number four, man? Uh, for number four, I have an artist who, uh, in fact played Dublin as part of a double bill once, but uh, that's not the occasion that I'm talking about here. It was in support of Radiohead at Marley Park that we saw this guy. That, of course, is Beck with EPRO. And, yeah, I mentioned a double bill with the AAS because I actually went back to uh, the No Encore archives and a show that I did with Zapley back in the day when uh, David treated us to a Beck listening guide. And he was kind of going through some of the live tours of yore where, like, Midnight Vultures, they had, like, a full-size bed that was lowered onto stage and the entire band would get in to sing Debra. Um, that was not this tour. This was the Guerrero tour where he had like uh, like a full band uh, in marionette form on stage. There were video skits which were made particularly for the day of said marionettes trashing Radiohead's dressing room. And I think what was most striking, most important is the fact that Radiohead are 
quite a serious band. And at this point in 2006, it was kind of like after Hail to the Chief and I guess during the making of In Rainbows, they were very heavy. It was not a sort of fun live show. And Beck, on the other hand, seems to treat it as a sort of a comedy platform at times. And so made for a very refreshing contrast, I would say, to start the evening. So uh, that's what I would wonder, because obviously a Radiohead show, I've never been, shame, ashamedly, but from what I understand, it's a, it's a religious experience. Mm. And as you say, they take themselves quite seriously. Their music at the time, as you say, was particularly serrated. Who makes this decision? And is that like is that better? I like I I don't want band X to be supported by comparative band Y. I think it's better if you kind of fuck it up a bit. Is that what the kind of vibe was here? And also, like, how how did the self-serious Radiohead fans take to Beck? I mean, to be fair, the other thing to point out here is like Beck is good. Like, you know, this isn't an actual comedian messing around, which, by the way, as I was kind of like, you know, going through my memories and saying like, you know, well, what sort of strange pre-gig things have I seen? Peter Kay walking out to introduce Eric Clapton, uh, complete with a sing-along of Show Me the Way to Amarillo, has to be near the top of the list. I still to this day have no explanation as to why it happened. Can you explain why you were at an Eric Clapton gig? I Listen, this, this, that was another live in the marquee, right? Just going down to the tent in Cork was <laughs> such a novelty, right? After years of having to go to Dublin for gigs, being able to actually sleep in your own bed after one, you'd go see anything at some stage. But no, but like... Apparently. Beck, I think, was the perfect balance and indeed still is on many occasions the perfect balance of, you know, artistic quality and also a bit of fun, which uh, I think is what you enjoy in a night out, in my experience. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I don't mean to grill you, but I will say that uh, coming up now for me at my number four in, in, in most scene stealing or significant support acts, whichever, um, maybe fitting that we mentioned Clapton because uh, this act that I've selected for number four are no longer uh, what's the word what's the word here I mean I, I don't want to use the word cancel because consequences of actions came around for for unfortunately for this for this band so yeah it may be a controversial selection but I kind of uh, there's a story behind it so here's my number four to watch the things you gave me love to broken stupid building up so that's uh, that's brand new uh, a band I was obsessed with for a very very long time and it should be noted at the top of this that uh, frontman Jesse Lacey brand new was accused in late 2017 of sexual misconduct occurring during the, during the early and mid 2000s and uh, apologised band went away band was actually on its way out it had kind of released an album called Science Fiction and it was doing a tour as their last ever tour and then this happened and then that was the end of that and I remember very very specifically they were due to play the Olympia Theatre in Dublin and at the time, there still hadn't been a statement from him. There hadn't been, you know, nothing from the promoters. We were wondering if it was going to go ahead. Myself and my friend Kira, we're going to, initially we're going to go. And then it was like, well, we're not going to go now. It doesn't make sense. But for a long time, Brand New were fucking 
the the Radiohead religious experience that other people have to me. They're a band that gave me so much strength and power. And of course, all that's kind of fucked up now. And obviously, you know, I can only condemn what Jesse Lacey did because it fucking sucks. But the reason I've chosen them here, uh, nonetheless, is uh, they supported Biffy Clyro in 2016 in Dublin at the Three Arena. And uh, I did something very immature, Cullum. I don't know if you recall. Oh, uh, oh, I do. I I couldn't remember who the band were, (laughs) but I certainly remember your actions on this particular night, yes? Yeah, my actions, which uh, weren't great. Um, I gleefully went to see brand new support Biffy Clyro in the Three Arena. They only played about seven songs. Admittedly, it wasn't even that great. The venue didn't really suit them. And as soon as those seven songs were up, I was like, all right, that's it for me. And I did the Jerry Seinfeld leave move and I left. And I went, I think I went home. I might have tweeted about it, like a shot from the Lewis or something. <laughs> Biffy Clara fans came after me. In retrospect, it was a bit of a dick move. And uh, yeah, well, what can I say? It was, it was, it was a show stealing performance because I didn't watch the actual show. Is that the afterwards. only time you pulled that trick? Uh, I, 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 do you have one that I'm not thinking of? No, I, no, no, I, no. I, I don't think I ever have. The same as like walking out of movies and stuff like that. People always ask me, um, you know, yeah. One, I walked out of a Billy Connolly stand-up show just because it was a bit crap. Um, that I think is one of the, and of course I've, you know, left gigs that I was reviewing early yeah, because yeah. life's too short. But uh, I don't think I've ever actually done the L, I'm only here to see the support act and then I'm going home move. Yeah, I made a real production out of it. Again, I don't know what I was thinking back in 2016. I was I was a lot cockier uh, back then because I kind of look back now and I'm like, what the fuck were you doing, Dave? Like, I know you don't like Biffy Clyro, but there was, there was no need for that. Plus, you know, you were given like, I was given free tickets and I was just like, well, I'll show you, promoter, by being really immature for some reason. Uh, I left a Mario Rosenstock show halfway through because it was horrendous. Uh, I can't remember how I ended up there. Again, it's not like I bought tickets for these things or nothing, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of... Like, I think the fact that I I literally didn't acknowledge the actual act is the best way I can support a support act, you know what I mean? Mm. By giving them my full support and then consequently giving no support to Biffy Claro, who I'm sure they're nice lads. I just never really got it myself, personally. You have a support quota and... Yeah. (laughs) Can't be surprised. And look, it fucking hasn't aged well, has it? You know, this particular one. Back the wrong horse, say, Dave. I sure fucking did. And I will say that there is actually, a, there's a top five coming up uh, in the, in a few weeks' time on the show in which Brand New would be like a perfect selection. I don't think I'm going to pick them. I think, I've, I, I, I think I've got them out of the way for this one. Yeah. So there you go. Sorry to lower the tone, but uh, I did do that. So like, let's, you know, I think with this top five in particular, like as you have as well, I went to like experiences that I can firmly recall that I felt I had a significant part in, like, leaving as soon as this was over. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Biffy Clyro. They didn't deserve that, okay? That's me. Well, at number three, I have an experience that certainly I can recall with clarity, and I think a lot of people probably can. It was a moment, I think, for especially a lot of younger attendees, and God knows there were enough of those, because there was a lot of people in general there to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers when they were preceded by these guys.
That is Pixies, who, and I went back and checked, had only been back together for like 20 odd gigs when they supported the Red Hot Chili Peppers at Phoenix Park. So remind me of the year here again? That was 2004. So oh, Pix- it's that long ago. Yeah, okay. so Pixies broke up in 93, hadn't played together since 92. And so, yeah, basically broken a 12-year hiatus uh, two months earlier. Uh, and then rolled into Dublin to play for what apparently was 110,000 people. In the Phoenix Park? Yeah, it was the highest wow. attended gig ever. Now, obviously, you know, whether they truly did sell that many tickets or not, who's to say? But So hang on, they're, they're touring by the way at that time, are they? Must be. Yeah, so this would have been a year after Slain. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. I, and I have this is one of those ones that comes up. This isn't I was there because they even like today I was talking to someone. They were like, "Well, surely Pixies at Chili's is going to get in there because mm. everyone talks about." It. I guess well, if there's a fucking hundred and ten thousand people there, well, that's exactly it. But I think as well, okay, like first of all, to state the obvious, because they'd been off the road for twelve years, most people hadn't had the chance to see Pixies live. There was also the fact that you had a lot of young people, and I mean, I was one, uh, but therefore the. The Chili's wouldn't necessarily have been Pixies fans. And Pixies came on stage and it was, in the positive way, brutal. Like, <laughs> you compliment my choice of Bone Machine there. I was like, I think this is a song that probably best encapsulates the fact that, like, they walked up, picked up their instruments and just raged for an hour. They played 27 songs and, like, barely drew breath. <laughs> and you know and like they kind of very openly said at the time like that they were only back for the money they weren't particularly getting on I- interpersonally and i mean i guess it just stripped away any sort of distractions and left that it was just this almost relentless barrage of tunes that yeah i can remember personally and i'm sure for a lot of other people you were kind of like holy shit what's with these guys did you have a relationship with the Pixies before this? A little bit. I mean, obviously I knew kind of like greatest hits songs, so to speak, but I wasn't a, a massive fan. And obviously, yeah, you know, they broke up when I was four. So <laughs> I really didn't have a chance to sort of uh, take them to heart, so to speak. Yeah, like Where Is My Mind from Fight Club, of course. Um, I grew up in a house. My brother was obsessed with Pixies, so I, I, I knew well of them. But I didn't make it to this gig for whatever reason, and I probably because they were on support duties. Plus, as well, I, I adore Pixies. I really, really do. And I've seen them a few times now. Mm. Saw them in the Olympia doing Doolittle. Saw them at Trinity College. And they've been really, really fun both times. I, I had a great time. But to me, I'm amazed that they translated that well from the Phoenix Park stage in front of all those people. Like, to me, they're like best scene in a scuzzy underground bar if you get the chance you know what I mean oh for sure I think I mean listen the novelty factor definitely played a part here because you know it was the pixies like it, or, sorry just pixies right uh, well, it says the pixies I, I think with them it's okay I know but like you know th- this was a band I guess that you weren't necessarily meant to see and also I mean you know height of innocence here but like there was not, for instance, you like, you know, we talked about Coachella earlier. There had not been a live stream of their comeback gigs. You know, people were turning up legitimately going, I heard they played Lollapalooza two months ago and it was good. <laughs> but that's all we knew. So you really didn't know what to expect. And yeah, it was a bit of a, a larger than life moment, I suppose. Um, oh man, that's incredible. That's fucking awesome. How were the how were the chilies by comparison? Uh, fine, I think. It was good crack, I'm sure. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I can even remember on the train home the next day talking to the people sitting around us and yeah, it was Pixies that everyone was talking about. Um, made a, a few new fans that day, I think, to go with uh, the older ones who were suitably impressed. That's so awesome. I also, I, I love the idea that like, I can kind of picture you after that first track turning to the person next to you and being like, holy fuck, well, to be per- happening here. Well, to be perfectly honest, it was more like, you know, it finished the first track and because they're playing to 110,000 people of who maybe like 20,000 are truly paying attention, there's like a smattering of applause and they are just straight into track number two. There's no banter. There's no <laughs> soaking in the non-existent atmosphere. It's just, we're playing another fucking song. And that was it for an hour. It was, it was brilliant. It was like getting punched upside the head, really. Amazing. Listen to Pixies, everybody. You just can't go wrong. Uh, and so sometimes you take things for granted, though. And I think I might have taken this gig for granted. Um, back in 2015, we're going back to the three arena. Fuck, they've all been, they've all been that venue so far for me, which is, sounds terrible. But like, these are the ones I remember, guys. So yeah, it's uh, the 14th of January, 2015. Um, my beloved Slipknot are in town on the Prepare for Hell tour. And they got some new metal titans with them. So let's have a listen to them. Also, yeah, sorry. Uh, if you are listening to this right now at a particularly loud volume, I'd say lower that volume. Twist, 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 twist. Colm, ask me what you ask off mic there, please. What the fuck is this? <laughs> that is Corn. That's Jonathan Davis of Corn with the song Twist, okay. which is the song that they opened up with on their 40-minute support set for Slipknot. What a fucking support act. Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I grew up obsessed with Corn, And uh, I, I did a real, uh, I did a full-on Frank McCourt, Jerry Hannon there. I was obsessed with Corn. I love Korn. Uh, so, yes, amazing stuff. They were incredible. Uh, and the notion that they would open for Slipknot, it's like, wow, that's a real, that's a real kind of, you know, illustration of how things have moved on. It's like everybody's Slipknot. school bag in 2002 come to life. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd were unreal and they were there for it and there was definitely a sense of I saw Corn before in The Point I think as well in 2002 possibly uh, and this was kind of weird because it's like they've you know they're, they're no longer the headliner mm. I think they still could maybe but Slipknot have taken them out on tour it's a big fucking deal that's why I say take for granted because you're like what a bill that is so I remember vividly right going to this show going in sitting down because you know Obviously too old at that point, I guess, for a Slipknot gig on, on the floor. But I had, had lovely seats in the three arena. And uh, who's sitting next to me but Joe Panama, formerly of Overhead the Albatross fame. And obviously, uh, no encore stands will know, one of the very first guests we had on this program, mm-hmm. all the way back on episode one. And so it's always nice to bump into Joe. And I remember saying to Joe, you, you fucking hype for this. And Joe said, nah, man, corn suck. This is going to be terrible or something to that effect. And I was like, okay, okay. So I think two songs in or less, he turned to me and he said, man, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. And, you know, just to clarify this, just so that I'm not misquoting the guy or doing him dirty. uh, Let's hear from Joe Panama now. See what he thinks about the gig today. The year was 2015. The atmosphere was decidedly tense as every scene kid, every banky from Ireland from years gone past had been crammed together in a 13,000 capacity three arena. 
And do you know what? It was just delightful. Like, I cannot get over how a band can... I just, like, I'm amazed that they still care. Johnny Davis was... Johnny De- Me and him are on first name terms now, obviously. Jonathan Davis was so charming and charismatic and genuinely enthused to be there. And it it really... It just made the whole thing so much more fun. And they played... They opened with Twist and went into Here to Stay. And they even did, like, a Metallica homage in the middle of it. Ah, just consummate new metal professionals. And that's the last time you'll ever hear that phrase. It's the great Joe Panama there. Thank you, Joe. And he's dead right, every single word. It really did have that feel. This wasn't phoned in. They felt like they had something to prove or something. 40 minutes set, much like what you said about Pixies there. They just fucking ripped through it. The crowd were with them from the get-go. They sounded awesome. They looked awesome. It didn't feel like some kind of weird Slipknot are up here and you're not. It felt like, all right, lads follow that and that's kind of what it was now the slip show was amazing it was absolutely wonderful it was a hell of a huge production but it was just a beautiful thing and i really don't think i appreciated enough at the time it's like remember that happened that was unbelievable it was fucking christmas for new metal heads and it was perfect do you think as you look through these sort of annals of support acts and headline act interface as it were uh, over the years do you think that the type of crowd that you're looking at has much of an impact because i suppose and i didn't want to step on it because i i imagine that these are bands that you might uh, be thinking of here but like I can remember a few metal gigs with shall we say interesting support selections and volatile crowd reactions because of that the sort of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see at your average indie jaunt can you give me an example uh, actually, Lincoln Park getting bottled at Metallica stands I was there for that yeah no I was there for that one and and again that's one of those ones you kind of look back on and you're like that was a shame they didn't really deserve that did they um and I remember the darkness actually were the other support act <laughs> that day and I remember going in and being like I fucking hate this band they're comedy dickheads they suck call them I bought a darkness t-shirt that's how good they were oh, uh, as for as for my beloved Lincoln Park I, I'll never forget this. I remember very specifically looking at the video screen at one stage as a bottle flew at the DJ and I saw him while DJing pick up the bottle, look angry as fuck and throw it back. Um, I don't like, like it's, I've said before on this show that, you know, haven't been to many a metal gig. I've said before, I, I, I've done a, probably a, a, like a, a too kind generalization. I've said like metal crowds, man, they're the best crowds. You'll never have a bad time. That's not true. You put enough people in a room of any you know, music-leaning discipline, there's going to be dickheads. And people, I'm sure, have had some horrific experience of metal shows. I I guess I've been lucky. But I do think that there definitely is a certain kind of level of, I don't know if it's immaturity, but uh, like Linkin Park did nothing to deserve that reception. Nothing at all. People just thought, this is fucking pop. And it's like, first of all, in my opinion, metal is pop. You know, get used to it. And I think people who reject it on that level are saying something, they're kind of telling on themselves um, sure would be nice to go back I'm sure people would look back on that and kind of cringe and they'd be like those guys didn't deserve that and we were just behaving really really badly for no reason I saw something similar uh, at of all people and again let's not forget that there were five other guys in this band who as far as we're aware didn't do anything wrong uh, Lost Profits when I saw Lost Profits oh. before like at a gig and they were just getting hell from the crowd and I understand because again it's like these are pretty boys playing pretty boy music but it's like I do recall Tool were, were scheduled to play later on that day. And I remember the bass player from Lost Prophets doing the intro to Schism just to piss the crowd off. 
And I got to say, it was a hell of a fuck you. Fair play to him for doing that. And again, I'm reminded as well of going to Oxygen in 2008 to see Rage Against the Machine. And beforehand, in like literally the bill was the Coronas, the Kooks, the Fratellis, oh, wow. the Kaiser Chiefs, and then Rage Against the Machine. It was like, well, the fucking 12 labors of Hercules over here to try and get to see my beloved Rage Against the Machine. And again, do I agree with uh, the guy next to me who pissed into a pint glass and threw it at the Fratellis and their guitarist just dodged it? Mm. I kind of do. I kind of <laughs> don't. And anyway, that was a uh, corn supporting Slipknot was my number three. It was a fucking great night. What you got up for me next? Okay, so remember during the week, just to kind of open the kimono a little bit here, remember when you were like, can we, what kind a phrase. Of, can we kind of push the boundaries of what a support act is? Now, how exactly would you define it? And I was like, look, I think if the, if the anecdote, the story, the memory justifies its inclusion, then that's good enough. Well, I really took my own advice at number two. You know, yeah, you, you you know I love you very much. Have you have you picked someone doing the intro to the Super Bowl? It wasn't the Super Bowl. You're close. It was the New York Jets versus the Atlanta Falcons. I was there. Uh, <laughs> bizarrely, I think I mentioned it on this podcast beforehand because I came on for episode 300 the following week. I remember this because I walked around London listening to a Coldplay album because because I am that selfless. But um, things I make you do. Yeah, but no. So that's Marisha Wallace who was singing before an NFL game held at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Now. Like, honestly, if you want to hit pause and find it on YouTube, I won't hold it against you, right? She's doing this on top of the stadium. She's on the walkway above the stand at the Tottenham ground next to the big golden cock. Stop laughing down the back. Um, The whooshing sound that you can clearly hear around Home of the Brave is indeed a quartet of fighter jets doing a flyby. (laughs) Followed by these, like, tons of, like, red, white and blue fireworks going off the roof of the stadium. Boys, like, if there was a pop-up U.S. Army recruitment centre in the ground that day, I would have been gone. Like, these colours don't run, I'm off to Basra or wherever. Like, it was unbelievable, spine-tingling stuff. I've never seen a stage set quite like that. Oh my god! I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Well, okay, like yeah, you've <laughs> you've blown my mind, and I will say, you know what makes me feel better about my number one when we get there in terms of playing with form when it comes to these parameters. So, Anna Carter Adam is crying, laughing. By the way, it's wonderful <laughs> stuff. But hang on, right? So, you love American football. Oh yeah, you love American sports. Mm-hmm. You do you do you need this? Do you need this level of? 
pre-game pageantry and showmanship and like like it, like I didn't think about this as a support act, but you're not wrong, are you? No, I mean like it is just about sort of like literally getting the crowd warmed up and sort of you know making you aware that something special is about to happen, as I referred to earlier. And I think that's something that they do extremely well. You've seen it done in a lot of other sports as well, with varying degrees of success. I mean, Mania does it well. Uh, the first thing that jumps to my mind here is um, Camille Cabello doing that performance as Liverpool fans got pepper sprayed outside the gates of the Champions League final. And then she tweeted about her distaste from the crowd. Yeah, Yeah. she was really upset about getting about getting booed off. And uh, I loved the person who replied, you know, well, yeah, but like, if we tried to get on stage and have a game of five aside before her gig at three arena, it wouldn't go down well either. (laughs) Didn't uh, was it Fergie did this once, uh, the the, the anthem at a basketball game? Mm. And it was pretty bad. Yeah, there, and, and there's 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 a long history of kind of like bad anthems. But obviously that's partially as well because, you know, between basketball and baseball, you've kind of got, you know, 20 shows a day or whatever. It's the special occasions, the Super Bowl and something like an international game in London where they really will sort of pull out the stops. And I mean, to answer your original question, I won't say I need it, but if it's there, hook it to my veins. Okay, amazing selection. Uh, my runner-up, my silver medal this week. It's 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 good for me actually because I teed this up in the previous by not even meaning to. When I mentioned lost profits doing um the tool thing, mm. that was of course on the main stage at Ireland's one and only Ozfest festival that took place at Punchestown Racecourse in two thousand and two, twenty sixth of May, and I was there. Let's have a blast. What I heard that day. So that's Hell is for Heroes, who I discovered, I think, that day as they played at OzFest. Now, I asked you, I said, can you pick a festival act? Because does that make sense if you're on the bill before someone on the main stage, etc.? Are you a support act? I guess technically you are. But just to cover all bases, Cullum, what I've done here is for my support act from OzFest 2002 in Ireland, I've picked the entire second stage. <laughs> okay. Be- <laughs> because... There were two stages. What is the second stage, if not the support to the main stage, right? It's, so It checks out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I uh, had an epiphany moment about this earlier on when I was in a coffee shop and I was like, oh, Dave, you've done it again, you son of a bitch. I was so happy with myself. And I was very happy that day as a, as a new metal loving teenager uh, getting down to this, this big event. I've, I wrote a piece about this for Joe uh, last year. And I would encourage people to go check it out. I'll try and include it in the show notes if I can. A retrospective piece about it, because it was a big day. The only one and only time Ozfest came here. And I remember being on the bus down and just fucking having the time of my life. It was incredible. Uh, I remember very, very specifically uh, all these like, you know, kind of older lads from Drawler, these kind of like, you know, these metalheads were on the bus and what plays but that pink song, Just Like a Pill. And everyone on the bus starts screaming the chorus together. And it was in a moment of ironic glee. Then we get there to the festival. We find Ozzy Osbourne has pulled out 
I was like, grand. <laughs> I have no real interest in seeing him. That's fine. Uh, it meant that Tool got bumped up to headline status. And But as the day went on, and on the main stage, I saw the likes of Drowning Pool, uh, shortly before their frontman passed away, actually. Mm. I saw Lost Profits, long before their frontman did the fucking worst shit of all mm. time. Uh, I saw El Nino, who were a lot of fun. Uh, I saw a bit of System of Down and Slayer as well, Tool. But like, we, like the reason why I don't have... Uh, most people's memories of that day are they're like... System of a Down and Slayer, man. They were unbelievable. I'm sure they were. I didn't spend that much time watching them, which in retrospect is a bit of a what the fuck, Dave. But the reason is I was transfixed by stage two. It was the indoor stage. It was in like some kind of weird makeshift hangar. Sound wasn't even all that good. But I was seeing all of the acts I'd read about in Kerrang. Like just right there. Like you could reach out and fucking touch them. There was Otep. There was Hell is for Heroes. There was my beloved Mushroom Head. There was my even more beloved American Head Charge. Actually, maybe Mushroom Head are my more beloved. I, I don't know. Tough one. There was Kitty. Like, the whole thing was just fucking amazing. And I was like, this feels like a moment in time that I will never, ever recreate. And I haven't ever. Because those acts didn't fucking come back. Yeah. Mushroom Head came back um, to the Temple Mar Music Centre as it was shortly afterwards and I remember getting the bus from Dublin getting to the door and seeing a sign on the door that said they've cancelled pretty sure they never came back again I've never seen American Head Charge since never seen Kitty since never seen Hell is for Heroes he heard there really fun UK band yeah it just felt again like it, it was like the, the thing I talked about at the start of this with the whole Vex Red thing I just felt like this is where I'm supposed to be I'm loving every fucking second of it and at the time as well I guess that's my first festival so it was quite the novelty. Yeah. I've, and I, I mean, yeah, I loved it. A novelty for you, granted, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I recall the piece that you wrote for Joe. This was a kind of a seminal moment for not just sort of, you know, metal music of that precise time, but, you know, given that it really is sort of the only massive scale hard rock festival that Ireland's ever had, it does kind of have its its own place in history, so to speak. Well, I mean, there was the Sunstroke Festival, I think, in the 90s, and I guess Fela on occasion would lean that way. But mm. the, yeah, you're right, like, so scarce. And there was, pre-pandemic, there was supposed to be the Sunstroke Festival making a comeback. It was going to be a two-day right. event. And I think the Deftones were lined up and Fate No More as well. And I, I think it was doing okay in terms of ticket sales. I don't have those numbers or anything, but like, there definitely was interest. And I understand that, you know, alternative fe festivals like this aren't going to sell as well as, say, a Longitude or an Electric Picnic. But it, it hurts, man. It hurts fucking people who want to go to those kind of shows and want to experience those bills because it's a very American thing as well. Like you see some of these these posters even now, like from, you know, in these places in like, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada. And you're like, that looks like my dreams come true. And there's not a chance it's going to come to Dublin. So even a, even a watered down... There was actually... The, the, there was the Download Festival, which was kind of tacked on to a Metallica show, I think in 2006, they just kind of like bolted on a second stage. It was the closest thing we had to a recreation of the Ozfest thing, but it wasn't quite the same. So yeah, uh, I'm really glad I was there because again, it's these opportunities are fucking goldust. All right, so we get to number one and in my gig going experience, there was absolutely no question of what stands out as being certainly the most memorable support act that I've ever had the chance to see.
of course, is the Flaming Lips, who are widely regarded as being just a bit of an iconic live band, whether it's on their own headline shows, whether it's festival appearances, or indeed whether it is support slots. They really bring it, shall we say. So if you're not familiar, typically that's the first track, Race for the Prize is the first track of the gig. Um, Wayne Coyne would come out in a Zorb, you know, one of those giant inflatable bubbles and sort of run around on the crowd, basically, for the next few minutes. They had a stage full of dancers, which was usually just kind of like, you know, assorted people who are hanging around backstage. Half were dressed as Santa, half were dressed as aliens. There's a lot of confetti cannons, a lot of sort of playing with lasers and mirrors. And it's a whole thing, right? And I saw them support Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan at the time was about 80. Uh, He didn't play guitar because he had arthritis. He didn't smile because he's cranky. He didn't sound like himself because that's how Bob Dylan performs live now. And you surely could not have found a more whiplash-inducing duo to headline a bill because Bob Dylan could have come out in a Zorb and ran around the crowd. with Santas on one side and aliens on the other, and people would still have gone, yeah, Bob, but where are the confetti cannons? (laughs) And that has got to make for one of the weirdest evenings of entertainment I have ever seen in any form. Yeah, hell of a fucking thing. You gotta tell me about the crowd split here, though. I mean, surely some people were like, what the fuck is this? To such a degree that they had no clue. But they were, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, it's nothing if not enjoyable. And so I think even the most bemused were at the very least able to laugh along. It wasn't one of those jokes that was complex and you needed to be let in on, as it were. It was more like, you know, oh, look at the dancing Santas. We'll have a dance too, as it were. Um... Like, it was also, it was a weird day. As I recall, there were rumours that Michael Jackson was knocking around backstage and might be duetting with Bob Dylan at some point. That was all the rage at the moment. Um, We were also treated to, I think, the Violent Femmes earlier that afternoon, who were quite well suited to a a sunny afternoon in Kilkenny. Uh, I think we also... Did they play, did they play Blister in the Sun? Oh, did they what? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was close to playing it twice, I'd say. Um... (laughs) And then, and and I reckon, I, I'm, I'm going to say Mundy. It just feels like Mundy was involved. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he's... Yeah, you could take a punt on that one, yeah, I'd say. maybe that was yeah. just my mood. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. What, like, it, obviously, long before I entered the music industry, this is 2006. It was the weekend of my 18th birthday, as a matter of fact. Um, friends couldn't get tickets to Dylan in Cork, so we all went up to Kilkenny. But... I'd love to go back now for kind of an oral history and just like, who decided to put this bill together? What did it look like backstage? Did they meet? Did Wayne Coyne and Bob Dylan chat? And if so, about what? Um, Yeah, just, just one of those evenings that I will always remember and will forever be telling people about this weird and bizarre sort of combination of acts to put together. Well, listen, man, if you ever do put up that oral history together, uh, come back on the show. Tell us all about oh, it. Microphone ready for you at all times. And in a weird, strange way, Cullum, you've kind of set me up perfectly for my number one selection. So uh, I've got a lengthy clip here. It's about three minutes long, which kind of really goes against what we try and do on this one. But it'll make sense uh, pretty quickly to some of you, Cullum being one of them. Uh, so here we go. Uh, my number one 
show stealing support act, significant support act that I've experienced in my life is um, me. It's day five. It's Sunday morning. It's Mother's Day. In about, I think, six hours or so, I'm going to meet Cullum and he's going to be my date for the last one of this. I think this is the stupidest idea I've ever had in my entire life. So I need more than one drink to get over you. And I know it's not the right way to cope, but I don't know how to handle my emotions. One drink to get over you. And I know that I've regretted in the morning. It's the bottom of my heart that I've been pouring, yeah. I'm so fucking tired. Like, I'm so tired. Jesus Christ. This is so stupid. <laughs> Why am I doing that? Why? Picture this. An unprecedented five nights pre-arena Dublin. Picture this. Live for five nights from March 27th to 31st. Tickets on sale now. I've never been to five gigs in a row in my life. I've never... I think I've seen The National five times over the course of about five or six years. You know, this is just ridiculous. I'm waking up this morning and I genuinely have a medley of Picture This songs in my brain bouncing around and I can't get them out. And it's just kind of hit me that that's probably going to be there for a little while. I, I, I tried walking to the shower there and I just kind of forgot where I was and my legs feel like lead. I have to go again for the fifth night in a row and I think I'm actually broken at this point. I, th- I, I think something in me is broken. If I could go back and stop this from happening, I would go back and stop this from happening. I think I'm broken. Dave Hanratty, out. Plug me out and plug me back in and I'll start Set my emotions and make me open. And bring that sounds a little bit tight, but I'm not going to try to do it. Hello, shall we put a tip my hand before we leave them? Have you had a good night tonight? Man, I don't want to leave the fucking stage. Well, uh, I think that about covers it. Uh, I should say, first of all, uh, if you want to know where that came from, if you didn't hear it before, episode 159 of No Encore, which is called Picture That, and it was about my trip to see Picture This five nights in a row in the Three Arena Dublin. Um, I must confess, Cullum, you know, uh, I couldn't resist. And I should say, I was going to pick Lewis Capaldi, who did support the band on those five nights and talk about how he was the bigger star. Look at him now. What a easy night's work for him. Blah, 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 blah. But I realized again, sitting in that coffee shop, I had epiphany number two. And I, I said to myself, Dave, you supported Picture This on that. Uh, on that the whole way journey. through. 
the whole way through. I wrote a piece for Joe, talked about it on this podcast. And of course, who was with me on the final night? You. I was, yeah. That was a surreal experience. I th- we're, I'm sure I've actually discussed this on the show before, but you kind of turning to me, like quoting their banter about five seconds before they rolled it out for the fifth night in a row was disorienting to be honest it was very strange however listening to this and as you mentioned Lewis Capaldi I'd actually forgotten that I wasn't there to see him and I wasn't going to make you see him for the fifth time who is Charlotte? Oh that was the they had a a, a vocalist come on during the picture this set oh, okay. who uh, did like a, a, a song with them and I think she was some UK label mate or something possibly ah, fair enough I don't recall hearing from her since the other support act they had on those shows was Dagny who again, I haven't heard that much from since. Maybe they're doing incredible stuff. I don't know. Um, and I should say, speaking of doing incredible stuff, Dahi Odroni, the wonderful Dahi, is the one who put together that terrific package, let's be honest. I sent him a voice note of me just you know, eyes hanging out of my head at that point, And look what he did with it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all on this call just going like, that production's really nice. Yeah, it, it was gorgeous. And, uh, and it was a hell of a time. I mean, I know, you know, this is probably like, you know, this could be a jump the shark moment for the show, this level of self-indulgence to put myself at a number one in a top five. But if ever a human being has earned it, it's this guy. Hey, listen, right you're, you're like Liam Gallagher enjoying his own AI. It's, you know, the lines are blurred, but it's okay. I am mega. And that is our top five best support acts, most scene-stealing, show-stealing, significant support acts we've experienced. Uh, there's tons of them. I wish I could remember them all, but unfortunately yeah. my brain is shot. So, And also I, I do always appreciate uh, threads like this. So tweet Dave if you actually remember some uh, of your own as you listen to this. Oh, actually, that's a good call. I did actually put up a tweet during the week. Uh, so I might just like try and access that now. So while I'm doing that, Cullum, uh, you know, back on the show. Obviously, you'll come back again. Uh, mm-hmm. For anyone who has missed you, uh, how's life? Tell us all about your life at the moment while I it's find fine. this tweet. We're, we're down in Cork, uh, trying to kill time before we have to really tackle uh, doing up our house. Uh, I was telling you all fair that I hadn't... Like, nobody warns you when you buy a house that basically every weekend is just going to be filled with doing bits from then on. Uh, whether it's gardening or insulating things or cleaning things or whatever. But uh, yeah, getting used to it and trying to put off some of the bigger jobs for a little while. Um, otherwise, things are good. Thank you. And yeah, so I put that tweet out during the week. Here's some uh, smattering of responses. CSS supporting Gwen Stefani, Eve Toomer supporting Nine Snails. That does sound very good. Uh, Kaiser Chiefs for Foo Fighters. Maybe they're good at this whole, you know, support a big rock oh. band thing. I will, say, to be, I will say, to be fair to Kaiser Chiefs uh, at Oxygen 2008, they did what Linkin Park couldn't do and the bottle throwing and the general kind of whatever the fuck, they kind of threw it back on the fans quite well and they like took the piss and they like did it to such a degree that the fans would start doing like circle pits to try and mock them. But actually okay. it just made Kaiser Chiefs look really fucking cool. So yeah, strange I, I, one. I, I imagine, and this might be a generalizing statement, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I like, I just don't think you cut your teeth playing like working men's clubs in Leeds without growing a pretty thick skin and knowing a few tricks of how to get a crowd on your side. Oh, they even won me over. Uh, someone else here says Florence and the Machine opening for Snow Patrol in the Phoenix Park. No, thank you. Um, here's a good one. The Redneck Manifesto supporting battles in Vicar oh, Street. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was there. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, Absolutely I, incredible. I'll, I'll be honest, though. Around that time, I feel like I saw either the Rednecks or Jape and some Richie project support about five different bands in the space of three years. 
Uh, we also have At The Drive-In supporting Royal Blood. Easy win, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bested Beck in three arena. That's an interesting one. You might have some contentious feelings on that one. Who knows? Uh, Erasure on Just Before the Beastie Boys at EP many years ago. That does sound interesting. I will say, one thing I, one I actually missed, and I regret to this day, I saw an amazing Take That show in Croke Park, and I missed the support act, and the support act were the fucking Pet Shop Boys. Oh, wow. I know, I know. Raging, absolutely raging. Uh, apparently Young Fathers are supporting Depeche Mode in June of this year, in which case, go to that. Uh, Vampire Weekend supporting Arcade Fire in The Point. The Prodigy at Slain 2008. It, the lists go on. You know, I was worried you were going to ask me about, you know, new or even new-ish music on this show. And I was like, last album that I actually really liked was probably Young Fathers. So that... In 2018, have you heard the new one? It's very good. Oh, no, sorry. No, that's what I mean. The, the oh, you have? new okay. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that stuff. bad. <laughs> well, I should say that... We don't Cullum... have to go back five years to find a record <laughs> well, I'm, just, like. I'm just making sure because when Cullum, when Cullum scaled the no-encore prison walls uh, and did a real, like, I'm never going back, you you have kind of decreased, I think, your, your new music supply. Oh, completely. Years. Yeah, yeah. I usually just use Spotify for podcasts now, which is always fun when you get to the wrapped stage of the year and it's like, your favourite genre is American football. <laughs> and your favourite artist is shouting men <laughs> okay Colin Regan uh, you're welcome to come back and shout anytime on this show thank you so much for stepping up um, I think did you pick support acts because like you are the support act on this episode is that is this the meta it, thing it wasn't that intentional to be perfectly honest but you know what if, if, it, if it wraps things up nicely then sure it does work. And to be fair, I was going to say it, but he jumped in on the chat and made sure that I would say it. The real, yeah, I'm the support act always, says Sonic Architect Adam, which to be fair is absolutely true. Were it not for him and previously Eve Murray and everyone else, Dahi and other people who've helped out in the show in terms of production over the years, uh, there wouldn't be a fucking podcast. So God bless everyone who does, in fact, either work behind the scenes or opens for people and supports them in that way. And uh, support yourselves, listener. And support No Encore if you want to. Patreon.com slash No Encore. For now, Colin Regan, we bid you adieu. Take care. brother. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Encore. There will be No Encore back next week with a brand new special guest. Talk then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.